Uh, hi, everyone. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 10 today. If you open up the handout, you would have gotten from the door on your way in. It's on the inside two pages. Uh, we're reading from verses 1 to 45. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and, as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad, because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, 
Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thanks, Jessa. It's good to be with you. Um, you'll find an outline on the back of the sheet if you find that helpful. Have you ever had that feeling of complete disorientation? Maybe you wake up in a strange bed in unfamiliar surroundings and suddenly you start to panic. What am I doing here? What, what happened last night? And you remember it was a sleepover or you're out camping or whatever it is and suddenly you calm down. I think it's the effect of optical illusions. Look at that. And it, sort of, it plays with your mind, doesn't it? Uh, those lines are actually straight. I know you don't believe me, but they are. Or uh, some of Escher's famous uh, uh, drawings... It looks fine to start with, and then you look a bit closer and you think, no, that doesn't work. Somehow the laws of of nature have been bent and twisted. It's not my world anymore. Uh, Rosemary and I visited a house in uh, New Zealand that deliberately tries to do that to you. It sort of puts everything at the wrong angles, and, and that's the sort of situation you find yourself in. And it does play with your mind. It does your head in. It's a it's sort of an alternative reality. Well, that's really what Mark chapter 10 is like for Jesus' disciples. I don't know whether you picked it up as uh, Joseph read it for us, but Jesus talks about marriage and divorce. And the disciples are so stunned by his take on it that they've got to come and ask him about it. I suspect they're even more stunned by his answer to their question. Verse 13, they're shooing the children away. They think they're helping Jesus, but they get roused on by Jesus. They get a spray. Verse 24, Jesus sends this rich young man away, sad, and they can't believe it. But they don't know what Jesus is doing. Why would he do that? And then Jesus says, it's, it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And at that, they're just total, they've lost it. <laughs> they're just on a different wavelength completely to Jesus. Jesus starts to head towards Jerusalem and they're reluctantly following behind him. And they're astonished that he's going towards Jerusalem. What, why there? That, that, that's the danger. Verse 41. Uh, the, the, two of the disciples, James and John, have asked Jesus for particular places in the kingdom. And when the rest hear about it, they're indignant. How dare they get the jump on us? And what does Jesus do? He rounds on all 12 of them for what they're into. Something that comes so naturally to the disciples is totally out of step with Jesus. Jesus and his kingdom don't seem to fit normal life. There's something different about it, something that plays with your mind, something that disorientates all those that come into contact with Jesus. It's Jesus' upside-down kingdom. 
To get on Jesus' wavelength, I think we need to backtrack a little bit to what we looked at last week. If you are here last week, we looked at Mark chapter 8. Jesus finally confronts his disciples who have been with him probably for two years at this point. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter pipes up, you're the Messiah. It's finally, the, the penny's dropped. I, I know who you are. You're God's king sent to save. And then Jesus begins to teach them that he's a different sort of Messiah to what they're expecting. They're expecting somebody who takes control and, and, and the whole thing becomes a great uh, rolling uh, celebration. But instead he says, no, I'm going to get killed. Peter tries to rebuke him. Jesus rebukes Peter. And then he calls the whole crowd and says, listen, if you want to follow me, you've got to do what I'm doing. Deny yourself and take up your cross in order to follow me because that's where I'm going. And whoever wants to save their life, if, if you hang on to your life, you try and save it rather than risk it to follow Jesus, you'll lose it in eternity. But if you lose your life for me and for the gospel, for the cause that I've come for, you'll save it in eternity. And that really is the background because the disciples don't get that. And it's not very attractive to them. And so we see in incident after incident, they're just on a different page to Jesus, a different wavelength. So we're going to go through these incidents in chapter 10 fairly quickly and then try and and pull together what comes out of it. Firstly, we have Jesus and divorce. He's asked by the religious lawyers uh, in verse 3 whether it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And it's a hot-button issue in that culture. Two reasons. One is, amongst the religious leaders, the theologians, there's some debate. For some of them, they think that divorce is actually pretty easy. If your spouse does anything that you don't like, and you have a mind to do it, you can divorce her. And in that culture, you could only divorce... It was only the man who could divorce the wife. The wife couldn't divorce her husband. Others were all much stricter. They said, no, she really must do something terrible. Maybe she has an affair. She does something like that. Then you can divorce. But there's also a political issue. You see, the king in the, in the area where Jesus is actually talking, where the questions are being asked, is Herod. Uh, Not Herod the Great, but his son Herod. And Herod recently had divorced his wife in order to marry Herodias, who's also just divorced divorced her husband, Philip, who's Herod's brother, in order that they could hook up together and get married. And John the Baptist criticised Herod for what he did at Herodias. You know what happened to him? He lost his head. It's a political issue. It's a hot-button issue, this thing of divorce. What line is Jesus going to take? We're told they asked him to test him. They want to catch him out. They want to force him to choose sides, to put himself in danger. And how does Jesus answer? Well, he asked them, what did Moses command? And they say, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce. They're sort of referencing Deuteronomy 24, if you want to look it up, which says that if a man divorces his wife, he's got to give her a certificate of divorce and then goes on to, to regulate what happens afterwards. And they take that as divorce is okay, it's permitted. But that's actually bad logic. So the university has a rule that says, if you fail a subject, you have to repeat it. Now, does that make it okay to fail a subject? No, it doesn't, does it? It's just regulating what happens if you do. It's not saying it's a good thing. It's not saying they want you to do it. It's just saying sometimes it happens. Well, that's what the law in Deuteronomy 24 is like. And Jesus goes back further. He doesn't answer from what's the command But what's God's intention? What's the right thing by God? And at that point, he ends up in a very different place to the Pharisees. He goes back to design. 
And he goes back to Genesis chapter 1. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He talks about the nature of God's creation and design. He created humans as a gendered species. All of us are either male or female. Not just biologically, but psychologically. As people, we're one or the other. There's a, a, a binary nature to gender. Both equally in the image of God, but not equivalent. There's a difference. There's a complementarity between men and women. And he says there was a purpose to that. In, uh, later in chapter 2, the Lord God made a woman from the rib out of the man. And the writer explains that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Well, that's what Jesus quotes. Why did God make us male and female? Why are you a woman if you are, or a man if you are? Well, because God had this design in mind, a purpose in mind, that a man and a woman would so be united together, leaving other relationships behind, committing to one another, and forming a lifelong sexual union, that they're no longer two, but one. That's why God made us men and women. He wanted that to happen, that we'd leave and cleave and become one flesh with sex as that expression of a relational unity. And Jesus says, well, if God's joined them together, for goodness sake, don't separate them. If you separate them, whether you're part of the party, one of the parties or someone else outside, sort of trying to muscle in on that relationship, you're separating what God has joined. Don't do it. That is, Jesus sees divorce as a deliberate rejection of God's purpose in making us male and female and marriage. Whether you're Christian or not a Christian, that's how Jesus understands marriage. And any other recalibration of that design, whether it's divorce or cohabiting or same-sex marriage, shouldn't happen. It's against the purpose of God. Now, the disciples are perplexed by that. It's very clear-cut on Jesus' part, isn't it? It just says divorce isn't on. Don't do it. But many of their friends had been divorced. It was quite common in their culture and in their society. They come and ask. And Jesus' response is actually to tighten things up a little bit more. He says, if you get divorced in order to remarry someone else, that's adultery. And you know what the command God gave about adultery is, don't you? No, deny yourself. Whatever happens within a marriage, stay united, stay married. Be committed to working at it no matter what happens in the marriage. See, Jesus is saying to follow him will affect everything in life, even marriage. It isn't just something for your religious life. It's all of life. And then we have this incident with the children. The disciples are protecting Jesus. They realise he's somebody of real importance and they're taking responsibility for his itinerary. Imagine for a minute that you're the, the tour manager for Jesus visiting Perth for a weekend. You've got to work out his itinerary. Okay, what would you do? What would you get Jesus to? What would you arrange for Jesus if you were the tour manager? Imagine he was going to spend two hours at UWA. Who would you get him to see? Vice Chancellor? Your professor? Maybe your friends? <laughs> That'd be a great chance, wouldn't it? Well, that's sort of what the disciples are doing. They're saying, Jesus, you're too important to be to be bothered with children, just little kids scruffy, grubby little kids. You, don't, you shouldn't be bothered with them. It's only the important people you should be seeing. So they're orchestrating his itinerary. Children don't matter. They're not important. They don't influence anybody. They're not worth Jesus' time. They're actually expecting Jesus to be pleased. 
But Jesus is indignant. Verse 14, when he saw it, he was indignant. It's a very strong language. He, he really was not happy with what they're doing. The disciples have got the whole thing upside down. Because the kingdom, he says Jesus, belongs to people like these grubby, noisy kids. And his, his reason is verse 15. I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. If you think you deserve a place in the kingdom, because you're smart, because you're good, because you do your religious duties, because you go to UWA, you're locked out. Sorry, no place for you. Unless you become like a child, no pretensions, nothing to offer, nothing to bring, just like a child. (laughs) Which shows the disciples up a bit, doesn't it? Because they sort of think they do have a place with Jesus. When they come and ask the question in the previous verses, they expect Jesus to give him their attention and to answer their question, to give them his attention. They think they're one of the insiders and they're keeping the kids out, protecting themselves as much as anybody else. And Jesus rebukes them. They got his kingdom completely wrong. Yes, you become like these little kids. No self-importance whatsoever. You won't be members of my kingdom. And us, neither. And then the rich man comes up to Jesus. And the rich man is really an illustration of verse 15. Unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom. Now, this guy's got everything going for him. He's eager. He runs up to Jesus and throws himself on his knees in front of Jesus. He's respectful. Good teacher, he calls him. He wants eternal life. What must I do to have eternal life? He's spiritually minded and inquiring. He's morally upright. He can actually say, no, all those commands God gave, no, I, 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 I please God in all the things that matter to God as far as I know. And he's rich, which helps. Now, if someone like that, I don't know, walked into your church, how would you treat them? They walked in to see you today. Clever, rich person, inquiring about spiritual things, wanting to know how to get eternal life. Man, I'd welcome them with open arms, wouldn't you? They're <laughs> just the sort of person we want. But how does Jesus answer? <laughs> well, verse 18, he sort of throws his respectful uh, address back in his face. Who's good but God alone? Which is sort of a bit rude, isn't it? In one, one hand, he's asking, why are you asking me? Which sort of raises the question, who is Jesus? If only God is good and Jesus is the one willing to give answers at this point. But also, he's going to be exposed to somebody who thinks he's good. And Jesus doesn't agree with that. It ought to have made him stop and think. But then in verse 21 comes the real clangour. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. Get rid of everything in order to come and follow Jesus. Do you see how ludicrous that is? I mean, if this guy came into here and he said, what must I do to be a Christian? I would make it as easy as possible. I'd say, well, just trust in Jesus. I mean, you're almost there, aren't you? You're practically a Christian already. You're almost part of the kingdom. Surely everyone is welcome like that. But Jesus says, no, just you've got to get rid of everything and come and follow me. And the man goes away, sadly unwilling. He said he's interested in eternal life, but it turns out he's more attached to this life. He called Jesus a good teacher, but he's unwilling to obey what he says. He wants to save his life, doesn't he? 
That's what his life consists of. His, his wealth and everything that it brings him. And he wants to hang on to that to save his life. He can't let it go. He's unwilling to let it go to lose his life for Jesus. And Jesus sees the reaction of his disciples. He looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23. And the disciples are amazed. Man, if this guy can't get in, I wonder who on earth can. I mean, the disciples had been commissioned to be fishers of men. And here's a fish sort of jumping into the boat saying, catch me. And Jesus is throwing, is pushing him away. How could that be? Why is it harder for rich? They're openly amazed because he's an upright, rich man. Surely he's already favoured and blessed by God. He's, he's practically there. But Jesus goes on in verse 24. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier to get your car through a keyhole than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's ludicrous to even try and imagine, isn't it? That's what Jesus is saying. It's, it's impossible. It's impossible for everybody, not just rich people, but especially for rich people. Why? Well, it's disorienting for his disciples, isn't it? It just gets worse and worse. They say, who can be saved? And in verse 27, Jesus answered, with man it's impossible. It's actually impossible for anybody to be saved, but not with God. All things are possible with God. See, what stops this rich person entering the kingdom is what stops anybody. There's not so much his attachment to money. It's what money gives him. Because money gives status, doesn't it? It makes him a somebody. If you've got money, you've got a house that people will admire. You can drive a car that everyone will recognise. You can wear the clothes and the jewellery. You can conduct yourself in a way that people can't ignore. You're a somebody of, of, of status, of weight. And we respect such people. We even envy them. And whatever culture you're in, that, that's true, isn't it? Whether wealth is measured in cows or condom, condominiums, that's where it comes from. Something like wealth or other things like it. And he wants to come into the kingdom with his wealth, hang on to his status and come into the kingdom. And Jesus says, no, you can't do it. You've got to become like a child. You can only come empty-handed. You can only come losing your life. Well, the disciples come back at that and say, well, we've left everything. Verse 28, they boast about what they've done. Surely we deserve a place in the kingdom. And Jesus' response is encouraging, but it's got a sting in its tail. I tell you, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields. For me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecution and the age to come, eternal life. This is two things. Giving up things never puts God in your debt. God always richly provides more than you ever give up. You give up family, you lose family because of following Jesus, and many people do today, especially from Asian cultures and other religions. They come from Islamic background. They, they lose their families if they follow Christ. But he says, you, you, God will never be in your debt because he'll provide so many more family, brothers and sisters in Christ, families to be part of, a rich fellowship of relationships. And he does. But there's a sting in the tail with persecutions. <laughs> it's not going to be easy. If you follow me, you do have to take up your cross. And he summarises in verse 31, by many who are first will be last, and the last 
first. It's sort of a warning. The, dangers, the disciples are in danger of thinking they're, they're the first. They've given up so much. But they're still playing the status game. They've just changed the currency. Now it's who gives up more. They get more status. Jesus says, no, God keeps reversing things. You think you're first? You'll be last. The last will be first. The giving everything up is not a work that earns entry. It's simply a condition of coming to Jesus empty-handed, like a child. And now Jesus turns to predict his death again. This is the third time in verses 32 to 34 that Jesus goes back to this prediction that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. His future in Jerusalem is not status and glory, but public humiliation, shame and death. And at that inopportune moment, James and John came and asked for the positions of status and glory in Jesus' kingdom. Verse 35, 37, let one of you sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. They see Jesus as a ticket to get the status and glory that they really crave. But Jesus' answer pushes back the other way. The other disciples sort of see it. (laughs) They they realise James and John are getting the jump on them. They're unhappy. And at that point, Jesus rounds on all 12. Of course, they're all playing the same game for status, for self. And again, Jesus teaches us about the upside-down nature of his kingdom. Verse 42, he called them together. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. That's just the way of the world, isn't it? That's normal behaviour in the government, in corporate world. If you get to the top, what do you do? Well, you make sure that others know it for a start. You insist you have the biggest office in the corner with the best view. You insist that you've got the, the, the expense card so there's a bit of conspicuous consumption. People can see you spending the money. That isn't yours, but you have the right to spend it. And they lord it over others. They use their position and power to humiliate sometimes, to exploit I remember a friend of mine graduated from uni, got a job as a a graduate, and a a few years later uh, he was still one of the juniors in his office. And one of the projects they were working on went bad. And the boss managed to deflect all the blame for the project going bad onto him, and he got sacked. That's just the way of the world. That's how it works. (laughs) If you've got the position, you use it, don't you? That's what it's all about. That's how life runs. That's what Jesus is pointing out, that that's just the way of the world. But verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. See, Jesus turns it upside down. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Is it the guy at the top? No, it's the one who serves. In Jesus' calibration, who's the greatest at this university? Is it the vice-chancellor? Is it the chancellor? Is it the professors, the Winthrop professors, the research professors? No, probably it's the gardener. You know those invisible people you don't even notice? They're just in the garden in their dark blue uniforms, digging up stuff, just making sure the garden is nice for you to enjoy. Those sort of people, Jesus says, they're the greatest. Now, don't get it wrong. It's not that people who in leadership can't be the greatest. Jesus is actually in leadership. What matters is the motive. Service. That's what makes you great in the kingdom of God, not something else. Notice he's not saying serving is a sneaky way to get to the top. He's actually saying serving is the top, is the greatest. 
Why? Because of verse 45. Jesus came to serve, not be served, and to give us uh, give his life as a ransom for many. It's really the key statement of the whole book of Mark. Jesus the Messiah, what's he come to do? He's come to die. Not as a martyr, not to inspire us, but to exchange his life for ours as a, as a ransom. You know what a ransom is, don't you? Somebody's taken captive, they demand a ransom. Here is the ransom of a life. And Jesus gives his life. He substitutes himself. He dies in my place. There's echoes of Isaiah 53, if you want to look it up. The suffering servant who bears the sin and evil of others and takes the penalty that they deserve, that we deserve. That's the key event of this gospel. It's the key event, actually, of history. It's the hinge on which Christianity turns, because it turns everything in life upside down. But the disciples, they just sort of don't get it. It hasn't sunk in. There's a paradigm shift that still has to happen. Because the way Jesus thinks about life, the way Jesus conducts life, just messes up all our inbuilt assumptions. Jesus keeps turning our normal, comfortable expectations upside down. The disciples are disoriented. And I presume we are as well. The first will be last. The greatest is the slave. You've got to become like a child. You save your life by losing your life. That's disconcerting, disorienting. The disciples, well, it's confronting for them. They just don't get what Jesus is saying. The Jesus kingdom doesn't fit with how this world operates. It really is a clash of cultures, a clash of kingdoms. And verse 45 is the key. Both in the purpose of Jesus and the motive of Jesus. See, his purpose is to ransom, to rescue us from captivity, to save us and give us eternal life. At one level, actions like that are sort of inspiring. Katy Perry goes to visit a disabled person. Sporting stars visit the kids in the cancer ward at hospital and we're inspired. But this isn't just something out there. This is personal. I need Jesus to ransom me. It's for me that he did it and for you. He paid my penalty. He subbed in for me and paid the ultimate price. And that is true no matter how rich or smart or moral or talented or beautiful or powerful or successful you are. That's why you can't enter the kingdom unless you receive it as a child. Of course, if Jesus has done that for us, we come empty-handed. We, we can't come with badges on our chest, with plaques on our door. If we need rescuing, it's totally humbling, isn't it? Imagine you get into trouble down at the surf at Cottesloe and the, the lifesavers get out there in their rubber dinghy and, and haul you back in. When you get back in, are you going to hold up your bronze medallion for swimming? Like, <laughs> no, you've just been rescued. It's irrelevant, isn't it? A song captures it brilliantly. I think, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. It's humbling, but it's also very heartening. See, Jesus did serve you. He gave his life for me and for you. But do you now see why it's so hard for the rich and clever and moral to enter the kingdom of Jesus? Because we've invested so much in becoming the somebody to gain recognition and respect and acceptance. And once we've invested so much in that, it's very hard to let it go. This rich man, he went away sad because he had great wealth. 
He wanted to hang on to his wealth. He couldn't become like a child. And what Jesus is saying is if, if you can't let it go, whatever it is, whatever gives you your status, your place in this world, if you can't let it go, you must let it go. I remember meeting a guy, he was a 16-year-old. He was in the Australian uh, under-16s cricket team. And it was obvious just from chatting to him that his great ambition was to play for Australia. And from what I heard from him and from others, he was well on his way to doing that. But he was thinking about Christianity. He, he, he was exploring Jesus. And um, I, I sat down with him and I, we read this story. I said to him, what do you reckon Jesus would say to you? He said, well, <laughs> I think he'd probably say, give up your cricket. I said, yeah, I think he might say that. How would you respond if he did? He'd say, no, I'd walk away. But if you can't let go of it, Jesus says, you must. <laughs> if it means that much to you, then you can't enter the kingdom. You're locked out by what you're hanging on to. It matters too much to you. If it, if it doesn't matter much to you, if you can let it go, you don't have to. But if you can't, you must. It's worth asking, what would Jesus say to me? What would he say to you? What is it that makes you somebody that would be hard to let go? Is it your career path? Is it the friends you've got? A couple of weeks we're having some, uh, some outreach meetings, that, uh, the why that Tim was talking about earlier. And one of the things that stops me inviting people is the fear of losing friends. Now, that's a real fear. I don't want to deny it. I don't want to laugh about it at all. It, it's real. But Jesus is asking us, well, if that's what you're going to hang on to, do those friendships mean more to you than me, than the kingdom? If you can't let go of them, if you can't risk them, something's wrong, isn't it? That's not the kingdom of Jesus that you're part of, if you can't risk it. And secondly, there's motive. Here the king serves the subjects. He didn't come to gain status and power, although he deserves it. And so the, the king sets the norms for the kingdom. Serving is greatness. And that's the opposite, I think, to every culture on this planet. Because in every culture, life is about status. We live in what's often called a meritocracy, which is you earn your status. You're not born with it. That's aristocracy. No, you, you have to earn it. And so life for us becomes the search for something that we are, something we're good at, something that we can do, something that we can gain that will give us status, make us a somebody. For some it's sport or brains or looks or money or the body or personality or the networking, whatever it is. And already you've invested, I presume, 18 years or 20 years trying to build that. And Jesus turns it upside down. There's no status in being a Christian. In the kingdom of Jesus, the greatest is the least. And that's terrific. It's a great place to be, a terrific kingdom to be part of, because the leader has served us. Can you believe that? And when it works properly, the leaders, the human leaders, serve you. I remember hearing a story about a Christian man who was in middle management, um, and he had a team that he was working with, and the project that they were working on went wrong. Uh, one of the young grads, mainly, was the person who stuffed up. The management wanted blood, and this guy, the middle manager, actually took the blame for it. He was reprimanded and demoted. And the, the young grad came to him, and stunned at what he'd done. She said, I, I can't believe it. Why would you do that? I, I was expecting, I, I was living, just waiting for the notice saying that my employment had been terminated, and yet I, I've still got my job. Why didn't you do it? And he said, well, I'm a Christian. 
And Jesus, my Lord, took the blame for my slap-ups. So I'll take it for you. It's an upside-down world, isn't it? Has Jesus messed with your mind? I hope so. Because unfortunately, I think we're all so infected by this desire for status that we subvert even Jesus' kingdom. Because Christianity offers opportunities for status. You can even join CU and find status. Become a small group leader. Join the committee. Become a staff worker. There, There is some status in that. Serve to gain recognition. You can even put it on your resume, can't you? But Jesus didn't die to gain recognition, but to serve us, to ransom us. All of us, I think, find Jesus' kingdom disorienting. It subverts us, our hearts, our culture. The question it leaves us with, I think, is, are you willing to embrace it, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow the Lord Jesus?